Anyway, conversation for a couple weeks. Yeah? This transparency idea that you're talking about and what's happening is another testimony to me that the church is true. Yeah. Because if you look at the news of other institutions, just in our country, that have had real scandals and they've tried to cover them up just to protect the brand, when the truth comes out, it's just so much worse. Oh, it is. Yeah, and, and again, there's nothing in our history uh, that, that says that, that the church is somehow false or something like that. There's just a fuller history of very human people trying to do the best they knew how to do. So, okay, well, let's begin. Yeah, Jim? I believe we should read the Book of Mormon, I mean, the Joseph Smith Papers. He's saying, do you believe we should read the Joseph Smith Papers? Here's the, here's the, the purpose of the Joseph Smith Papers. You tried to sit down and read the Joseph Smith Papers. They are massive, and there's a bunch of volumes, and they're detailed. The Joseph Smith Papers become a, a wonderful reference place to go, that if we have an, a question about a certain period of time or certain event, it's great to go to the Joseph Smith Papers that you can do online. You don't have to have the bound versions of them. And say, what was Joseph Smith saying at that time? What are his actual words? Use it as a reference material, like a dictionary. You wouldn't necessarily read a dictionary, but you would certainly reference the, that kind of thing. But uh, Okay, well that's that. Now, before we get to Palmyra today, we need to finish up our discussion from last week. Um, last week we were talking about the fact that we felt like um, when we have looked at the, the great apostasy, we've had a tendency, our narrative in the church has always been that what was lost was the keys and the authority to, to administer the ordinances. What, we're ho- what we were hoping to talk about last time and finishing talking today is I believe that just as important about the loss of the keys and authority was the loss of theology that what was lost was a true uh, understanding of God's nature and the true nature of man's destiny. That, that over, the, uh, over the coming years, again, picture if we said to you, alright, something happens and all of the, all of the, the uh, Quorum of the Twelve, it, it, it all passes away, all at once. And now it's up to a stake president in Plano, and a stake president in San Francisco, and a stake president in New York, and one in Italy to do the best they know how to do, and answer questions as they come up. Now, mix that in for about a hundred years, and then bring this, the, the current stake presidents of those areas together. With none of them being straight when they're saved and killed up. Yes, and so, th- so they're just kind of making it up as they go sometimes and trying to answer dilemmas and have discussions and now g- let it percolate for uh, a century or so and then bring them together and see what the church looks like and see what is being taught in New York or San Francisco might be completely different from what's being taught in Plano or Italy. And that was what happened when Constantine started to bring everybody. And so the, without having a centralized curriculum committee and a quorum of the twelve and general conference, over time th- this apostasy was a slow rolling, slow changing, ever influenced by Greek and Roman uh, history that changed the theology over time. That's why the, uh, Constantine and Augustine were the recipients of, of a slow changing, evolving, dissolving uh, doctrinal background. 
Okay, so here's what we and so we were talking last time about the nature of God and the nature of the fall. That by the time it got to uh, Catholicism, what they inherited was a sense that the fall was a bad thing and that man was inherently evil and that there was original sin coming from Augustine. Okay, here is here is one of the other ones that I thought. Um, Also, if I get it to work, come on, you can, there it is, okay. Number four, one of the things that was lost, the, the last thing we're going to talk about doctrinally, was the doctrine of theosis. Theosis is still taught in the Greek Orthodox Church, which didn't, which didn't uh, devolve to original sin much. And that is basically, who's man's destiny? That we are destined to become godlike. That we can become like God. We don't know exactly what that means. Uh, but Clement of Alexandria, first century, we believe that Clement was taught by Peter. Clement of Alexandria wrote that Jesus became man so that we may learn from man how man may become God. And explained that because the righteous will become so near to the Lord, there awaits them restoration and everlasting contemplation. And they have been called by the appellation of gods. Sounds like it's coming right at the pearl of great price, doesn't it? Uh, being destined to sit on thrones with the other gods that have been first put in their places by the Savior. That's our divine destiny. Okay? Even as late as the 3rd century, the Bishop of Portus explained the righteous will become a companion of deity and a co-heir with Christ, no longer enslaved with lusts or passions, and never again wasted by disease, for thou hast become God. Early Christian writings on deification are so extensive that non-LDS scholar uh, G.L. Prestige stated that the early Christian church taught the destiny of man was to become like God and even to become deified. That was the, that was the doctrine in the first century. That's what, that's what rolled forward. And that was doing fine and wonderful until it hit Augustine, who had been reading Plato. And then it kind of all went south, <laughs> started to go south from that. And it was already being changed by Constantine in the third century. Okay? Ah, uh, yeah? Can I have a two questions Yeah, two, two questions. Okay. <laughs> you know, load up while you can, aren't you? <laughs> I bribe you some. Chinese okay, you bring some Chinese fried rice on Saturday at the Chinese New Year, which, by the way, is from 5:30 to 8, and everybody's welcome. Come get some. Come see the Chinese New Year and the dragons. It's gonna be good. Or lions, two lions. Anyway. Two questions. Yeah. Yeah. I. Why? Why the? Why our church does not use deity this word as often as Catholics? And the second question is, why we are. Why you're talking using the word theology rather than revelation? Ah, ah she, she said two, two questions that I'm using. One in terms of why, why we don't talk about deity. Uh, I think it's just more uh, the way that we're used to doing it. When we talk about, we use the word uh, deity. We don't use the word deity so much as other churches do. Yeah. Well, but, but it fits. Okay. 
uh, and then then our, our theology is comes from revelation. Our theology was formed by the revelation that comes. She, she's wondering why it is that we use using the word theology as opposed to revelation. Our theology arrived by revelation, not slow apostasy. Okay. okay because I was thinking maybe I I don't quite well understand the meaning of the word in English. Oh, maybe maybe not. Right. Yes. In Chinese, the words would be a little bit different. Yeah, because we're, we're talking about apostasy, apostasy, and then after apostasy, there's no uh, authority on the earth. Right. And the, all the theology um, basically come from revelation without authority. You know, I might do you. Yeah, I do, and, and yeah, yeah, and, and that see that one of the questions we didn't even I, one of the ones could have been actually number five could have been talk about where authority comes from. For instance, that there was a priesthood of uh, that came by the laying on of hands. Uh, if you went walk into any evangelical church these days, they will talk about a priesthood of believers. That the authority comes from the the word of God, which is in the Bible, and there is a priesthood, but it's a priesthood that comes from believers and that somebody might have a calling to do a ministry a youth ministry maybe one in Africa or something like that and that 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 believership gives them a priesthood that's one of the reason that's one of the things that changed in that slow rolling apostasy uh, over time okay now uh, back to uh, origin origin um, about 175. Uh, Origen is is one of the beautiful ch uh, church fathers that we had, and he taught extensively, like we were talking last time, about the pre-existence and uh, theosis. Man can become like God. Uh, he is declared a heretic uh, by uh, Augustine in. Uh, in 400 AD and most of his books are burned his right and we have very few of his writings but uh, this gives you an idea of origin he says you could not have reached the palm groves unless you had experienced the harsh trials you could not have reached the gentle springs without first having overcome sadness and difficulties the education of the soul is an age-long spiritual adventure beginning in this life and continuing after death he believed that there was a, the, the education and the growth in the spirit uh, world would continue on. Um, okay? And so much so that a, a non Mormon scholar uh, says, bluntly put, Mormons do not play by the rules of the Nicene Creed. <laughs> Their the theological arguments can look like a form of cheating when in reality they are trying to change the way the game is played. Mormonism is like an alternative reality come to life. A counterfactual history of post-Nicene developments of pre-Nicene theology. In other words, they're like they're bringing back what was there before the Nicene Creed. Uh, yes, we are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, busted and guilty as charged. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. The ultimate what if theological barter game okay what if Tertullian had been more successful in his explanation in the materiality of the soul what if the monks of Egypt had won their battle in defense of a physical God and what if Augustine had not read the books of the Platonists okay and what he's saying is our Christianity would look more like Mormonism is what he's saying that's exactly what he's saying um, 
So, Mormonism invites creedal Christians, the Christians of the, all the creeds, into a world where everything is slightly but significantly skewed from what they're used to. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> Huh? <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So that's why that's why I'm saying to you part of what was so critical to the world was not just that this was going to be evangelical Christian with the right ability to baptize. We're not evangelical Christians with a temple. We're not we're not Catholics with a little different line of authority. What we, what we offer to the world is a more full, robust view of God, of man's destiny, of the mar mar marvelous sacrifice of Adam and Eve. And we're going to take everything that they believe and then add to that and say, and here's the wider view. Which, which again, I was thinking about even the term, we know that the church is true. We tend to say, that if, if we're true, you're false. And it's not that's not true. It means that you bring truth to the, to the world and we're going to add to that the more fuller vision and we're going to bring more to it. It's a little bit like uh, King Benjamin's view at that point in, their, in the Nephite experience in the beginning stages of Nephitism after the, after the Dark Ages that King Benjamin can say very clearly there's a heaven and there's a hell and you're going to be judged according to your works. And that's what they understood at that moment in, in Nephite history. Now, move, progress that along through Alma, who understands more, and get into Moroni and Mormon, and you're not hearing so much about heaven and hell and, and judged according to your works. The Nephite society has grown. Okay. Well, we are bringing we're bringing that growth to the world, uh, and we want to take what they've got, like adding to what King Benjamin might have understood, and adding to that. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, that said, then let, let's now move forward. Oh, let, let me finish with this. Uh, what you should be reading for sure, uh, we know that uh, seminary teachers, institute teachers, what they're being told is make sure you know these new essays on LDS.org intimately because this is really where we're coming from. If you've got a question, go to these essays. Okay? Uh, and let me give you, so, so where do we stand on theosis? Because if when people are going to attack this church, and they run across the doctrine of theosis, how would a non-Mormon phrase it? How, what does the attack sound like? I have a hard time believing in you Mormons. Why? You'll become gods. Because you'll become gods, meaning what? You're equal to them. You're going to be equal, which pulls down on God's authority a little bit. We have a hard time with that one. It takes away from his supremacy. Mm -hmm. What else? You mean to tell me that you guys are going to have your own planets and be populating them? I have a hard time believing in people that think they're going to have their own, be their own gods and have their own planets. That's kind of weird. Again, it takes away something from God. Okay. Here is, so here's from the LDS uh, essay. A cloud and harp are hardly a satisfying image for eternal joy. <laughs> Although most Christians would agree that inspired music can be a fine, tiny foretaste of the joy of eternal salvation. Like the state choir this weekend. Okay? 
Likewise, while few Latter-day Saints would identify with caricatures of having their own planets, can I, let me say it again, while few Latter-day Saints, I'm going to change it, while few Latter-day Latter Saints should <laughs> identify with caricatures of having their own planet, most would agree that the awe inspired by creation hints at our creative potential in the eternities. Church members imagine exaltation less through images of what they would get and more through the relationships they have now and how those relationships may be purified and elevated. We don't know what being like God means. We really, really, and what, and what, it, how it will play out. But we rejoice in the possibility of somehow participating in creation through through uh, eternal uh, relationships. And beyond that, it's out, we have no idea. But we're just excited about that chance to do whatever the Lord would have us do in the eternities. But it won't mean sitting around on harp, playing harps, and sitting on clouds. Yeah. We are joint heirs with Christ and heirs with the Father. Yeah, and whatever that joint heirness means, right? There it is. Yeah, exactly. Okay? As the scriptures teach, the same sociality which exists among us here will exist among us there. Only it will be coupled with eternal glory, which glory we do not now enjoy. That is Mormon theosis. We don't know what's coming, but we will be joint heirs with Christ, as the Bible clearly teaches. Um, so, anyway. Alright, so that said, let's, let's now... Uh, so, so there. So that's the that's the gospel. That is what existed in in eighteen the 1800s. That was the state of the church, the state of uh, the understanding of religion, at that right up to this moment. Okay, now. Neil Maxwell says faith in God includes faith in God's timing. So let's talk about timing. Now, I picture the restoration as a little bit like the, the Lord sitting on a huge, uh, in front of a big chess set. And a number of things have to be moved and be in the right place. Now, from the idea of the right place, let me just ask you. If you're the Lord and you have plain and precious truths that now need to be returned, both authority but also new doctrine, which is really old doctrine, and you need a place to do it, tell me what elements would have to be in, in position that it would be the right place that the gospel could come forth in its fullness. When we talk about place, what would need to be... Here? Yeah? Religious freedom. You'd have to have a place of religious freedom. Okay, that people are free to worship. And so that would preclude what? What would create religious freedom? How do we make sure that happens? Whatever this place is. There has to be a constitutional piece to it that would ensure that there would be religious freedom. It has to be mandated. That is our rule. We're going to require that you be free. <laughs> kind of a weird thing. Okay. There be no state religion. There has to be no state religion, and that's going to enforce that. So that's going to leave out places like Germany and England and France and stuff like that, where there's a mandated you have to believe a certain way. Okay, because that would stomp down any attempts to do that. What else? 
You have to have a righteous people who are also well educated, that are able to learn and think and analyze. Okay? Okay? What else? There's kind of a spirit of religious revival. In Joseph Smith's words, he says, there wasn't a place where we lived an unusual excitement on the subject of religion. Yeah, there has to be a, 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 an intrigue, a sense of excitement and curiosity. And we're going to talk about that one in a second. Because that's another element of why it had to be in this place where it happened. Because I'm going to argue that there were very few places in the entire world at this time, as soon as possible, in the Lord's timing, as soon as he could do it, there are very few places that it could have happened other than upstate New York. I'm going to argue that in a sec. Yeah? It would have to have enough stability, peace and prosperity, so that people weren't just struggling to survive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay? It has to be uh, stable enough so that we know that it will be free and it's not going to fall apart. Okay? needs to be someone to take the lead. Somebody that's worthy. Okay, we're not getting to the who yet. We're just getting to the where. We're going to get to that one. because I always think about the fact that in order to have a to be, have a sanctified people you have to have a sacred place and you have to have a sacred time. Sacred place and sacred time create a sanctified people. And to have a sanctified gospel, this was really a place where we had to have a sanctified time and place that would create this. Okay? Alright. Well, let's talk about maybe why this place becomes so important. Okay? First of all, why it had to be uh, in this country. Who was coming to this country? Those seeking for religious freedom. Yeah, those that were looking for religious freedom. John Fisk, they the founders. John Fisk was a uh, American historian. <coughs> they the founders believed that they were doing a wonderful thing. They felt themselves to be instruments in accomplishing a kind of manifest destiny. And we've talked a little bit about manifest destiny. It's really fallen on uh, politically incorrect these days because we talk about manifest destiny goes hand in hand with what? American exceptionalism. And that seems like it'd be a rub against, you know, a lot of different groups inside the country but also internationally. They don't want to hear the words American exceptionalism. Okay? Let me tell you what, and we've talked about this before, but let me just remind you. Uh, manifest destiny means their exodus from Europe was that of a chosen people who were at length to lay the everlasting foundation of God's kingdom upon the earth. It wasn't so much American exceptionalism as much as it was American opportunity to set a standard for the world. That could be a blessing and a service to the world. That's, where, that's what they were looking at. We have been extraordinarily blessed to come to this land to establish something new and exciting and to set up a standard that will be different from whatever else has existed ever. This steadfast faith in an unseen ruler 
and guide was to them a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. It was of great moral value. It gave them a clearness of purpose and concentration of strength and contributed towards making them like the children of Israel and listen closely here a people of indestructible vitality and aggressive energy. That's why in both in the writing of the Declaration of Independence and also in the putting together the Constitution there were such discussions about we are creating something that has never existed. Let's reach out down into Athens and get the, the city-state republicanism of people voting and setting up all of these. Let's reach into Rome and get the structure and power that comes from that. Let's reach into uh, we can get some stuff from Plato and his understanding of stuff. It's like they're just reaching across the centuries and saying let's bring something together that is a new creation and what we're going to create is going to be a, a beacon on the hill. Yeah. But they also use the children of Israel coming out of Egypt as their example. There's no, there's no uh, surprise that in the, on the Supreme Court building, for instance, you will find uh, reliefs of Moses and all that. They very much saw this as a Moses coming out of the wilderness and creating a new people uh, that were going to be the standard of the world. Okay, just like Moses. Okay? Was I, thinking, I was thinking, what if Columbus did not find... The yeah, she says, what if Columbus doesn't find the continent? Then the, then if the Lord is trying to restore the rest, bring it, the church back, he's trying to do it in London or France or, you know, it's not working. Yeah, and his, his intention when he explored is to, I believe one of them was to expand yeah, he's going to do it for the honor of the, of the king and queen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, now, so let me give you an example of the people that are coming. I've mentioned, it, mentioned this one before. Um, what was starting to happen in England uh, not long after, the, the, after Jamestown and all that was that you had a number of independent church people that were starting to want to have a church, uh, but it wanted it to be independent from the Church of England. England, they were called independentists. Okay, then they were setting up independent churches. Well, Joseph Smith would have been considered an independent church. It was, and, and what would have happened is what happened to John Lothrop. John Lothrop in, in, uh, takes over a church and they discover that he's teaching things separate from the Church of England and he's thrown into prison. And then he's given an option we will let you out of prison if you will go away hop the ship and go to the Americas because they're doing that kind of stuff here but we don't want your lot here in England m messing with our stuff. So, John Lothrop, uh, I don't think you can, you can't really read that but it says he was, uh, Mr. Lothrop was the pastor of the Church of England of Edgerton uh, Congregational Society at Southwick, London, confined in the Newgate Prison, 1632, for two years. Uh, and then he comes to Barnstable, Massachusetts, on, on, uh, the, uh, on Cape Cod, to, to settle from there. And that's where he will set up his church. Yeah. Now, England considered this country kind of a, a penal colony yeah. for religious outcasts. Yeah. Like, I think it was a group that covenant, covenant church? Yeah. Or something like that. They 
Wherever they can find them, they gather them up. Put them on a boat and send them over here. And by the way, a lot of those, whether it be you Puritans or Quakers or Independentists, you're like, great. <laughs> you know, we can actually go set up our own thing. There's lots of land and we got freedom. And, you know, we kind of like what we're finding here. This is even pre, you know, Declaration of Independence stuff. We still can be free to do our thing. Okay? John Lothrop. So he's minister of the Church of England, arrested in 1632, uh, allowed to leave Boston with his followers, settled in Barnstable, Massachusetts. Why is this guy so important to us? He's the common ancestor for the Smith, the Youngs, the Pratts, the Taylors, the Kimballs, and the Hinckleys. <laughs> that, that there was, that the whole first generation of the church comes through John Lothrop. Okay. The, yes, yes. A lot of the the leading lights of the of the early uh, church. Okay. So this gives you a sense. And and uh, so I, again, when when we went to the Lothrop Hill Cemetery, had to run around and find the Thomas Hinckley uh, uh, gravestone. But but it's there, and that was the whole idea. And it was these people that were bringing a sense of new purpose to this country. Okay? All right. Now. Yeah. When you were in England, did you ever attend the Church of England service of England? Mm-hmm. What was it like? Well, it depends on what... He says that if you're in the church... If you go to the Church of England, what is that like? It depends on whether you go high church or low church. High church is Episcopal, is uh, Catholic light. So it looks a lot like a mass. Uh, low church looks kind of like a Baptist Wednesday Bible study. They have adapted that depending on how you want to, to do that. Okay? But still very much tied into the Archbishop of Canterbury and stuff like that. And um, All right. So, restoration. Right person. Now, this is where this gets kind of... Now we're going to get to that one, right? Yay, Shelly! Okay. Let, let's start with this then. So we have, uh, so we have the Smiths. And they're going to start off in Tunbridge, uh, Vermont. Uh, Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack are going to marry. Their, their fathers had fought in the Revolutionary War. Okay, these are, com- these are old stock good people. Uh, Lucy Mack's coming from a prosperous family. Joseph Smith Sr., not so much. Uh, but these are these are good people. The problem is is that Joseph Smith Sr. could never quite put it all together. Uh, he's always trying different things. He has a store that fails. Uh, when the store fails, he's going to um, he's going to do a, a ginseng venture. It's an import export business, and they're going to have a lot of ginseng, and they're going to send it off export. He has a partner. The partner uh, absconds with the whole thing and the profits and leaves Joseph Smith Sr. Up, up, and his growing family a pauper and they're not able to support themselves. So, so what he's really left is I've, I've got, uh, this is like 1813, uh, 1814. We'll try farming. So he sets up farming in Vermont uh, and first year fails. Second year fails. 
He's going to give it one more shot. Okay? And, this, and, and that's, their, that's their little place in Vermont. And, and to show you how the Lord moves chess pieces, the Lord knew that one other event would be occurring right about the time that Joseph Smith Sr. is trying like crazy to make this thing work. And that's what? The weather. Yeah. So right in the middle of all of this is Mount Tambora. Mount Tambora in Micronesia, or in, not, not, in uh, Indonesia, uh, explodes, and it's, and it's a hundred, we think it's a hundred times bigger than Mount St. Helens. So much so that it's spewing ash, uh, so much so that it begins to, to circumnavigate the globe, and it will affect the weather for the next couple of years. Okay, so what does that mean in cozy little New England at the other end of the world? Winter in July as it's circumnavigating that. And so uh, the, the year of 1815 is, is known in this area as 1800 and froze to death. <laughs> 1800 and froze to death means we're still getting frost and snow in June, July, and August. And it's coming right at the moment that Joseph Smith Sr. is, is staking one last growing season on trying to ha support his family and it wipes him out. Okay? Now, at this moment then, what's happening is some members of his family have been, uh, another event has been happening. Uh, what else is happening, what else is happening in, in our nation's country in 1815? Before the panic, the War of 1812 ends in 1815. Actually, ends in 1814. It just took him a while to find out that it had been signed in Belgium, and it's going to take a while to get the word to have them stop fighting. Because guess where they're fighting? <laughs> Buffalo, Niagara, Lake Erie, the Northwest. In other words, they're fighting in this area. There's a war going on in the area around Palmyra. So 1815, the war gets done, and now suddenly this area in, in upstate New York is now suddenly available. Okay? Now, from a timing standpoint, the Lord's timing, why now to start the, the restoration? Huh? Yeah, they're humbled. But we have now just... During the War of 1812, the White House is burned. Where Fort McHenry is being bombarded. This is where the Star-Spangled Banner comes in, in the War of 1812. This is a second War of Independence. And it's in this moment in time, 1814, 1815, 1816, America can finally stand and, and take a big sigh of relief and go, we are our sovereign nation. And, we're, and we, beat, we bloodied the big boys. We, we beat the, the uh, uh, patriots. Oh, that's New England Patriots. That's Super Bowl, sorry. We are the patriots. <laughs> Now they can, for the first time, say, we, we, we do believe that we will 
survive as a nation. And the very next year, the Lord then moves, starts moving the pieces quickly. Okay? Uh, so, there is this period of time where now there is just like this rejoicing that we are feeling our oats and everything is expansive and now we have this area in upstate New York uh, and people are moving who did 1800 and froze to death. You're now going to get this migration and it begins with the southern uh, southern uh, New Englanders in Massachusetts and Connecticut and stuff like that. These are called landed, landed uh, landowners, land, landed people. In other words, we own property in Massachusetts. We own property in in Connecticut. We're going to sell it. And we're going to be able to go to this these, this wide open space in New, in, New, in New York and buy land. We will buy cash for it and we will own it. If I'm an attorney in Boston, I can pick up and go to Palmyra and Mayston and Rochester and, and be an attorney there. They are established, wealthy landowners that do the first wave into Palmyra almost immediately. Because Palmyra is founded about 1790. So you're talking within 20 years, this is what's moving there. That's I hand, yeah. The Erie Canal being built at that time the Erie Canal is edging down. It'll get there in, in 1822, okay? But they know the route, and, it, and it's coming that direction, so it's moving, okay? So, the, so you get this sense of this is, it's like, if I go like back five years ago, it's like, oh, Prosper looks like it's opening up. Let's buy a house in Prosper. Because <laughs> it looks like that's going to be the next thing. By the way, Anna's probably the next thing. You know, we just keep moving north. We're just going to go where the, it's new and exciting and growing and everything. It is, it'll be cool. Okay? By the time we get to 1815, 1816, 1817, now comes not so much the landed, rich, wealthy landowners moving into Palmyra. Now what we get is the rest of the people. And these are the, these are the less wealthy. And so now what happens, this land is opening up, and Joseph Smith Sr., after three years of crop failure, the, 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 the town there in Vermont says, um, you guys have no money, you need to go away. You, can't, you have no visible means of support, you're going to have to go somewhere else. And they're literally kind of being kicked out of town. So Joseph Smith Sr., as you know, says to Lucy, uh, some of my family's headed up towards uh, that Palmyra area. I'm going to go bring the kids as soon as I give you word. Uh, he goes. He's trying to establish a foothold. He actually is able to rent a house. I'll show you in a sec that we, about where we think it was. It was just off of Main Street. He sends word down to Lucy. Hey, we're here. Remember, she packs up all the kids. They're going to come in the middle of the winter. Uh, they're going to roll up there about 1817. Remember that the, the, the uh, on the way up, uh, she's got this family, including this boy on crutches. Okay, this boy's been on crutches for a couple of years. Why? He has surgery. Uh, his typhoid had gotten into his leg. Okay, 
and he'd had that, that painful surgery, but he's on crutches and he's having a hard time. Uh, but now she's going to move this family and the guy tries to defraud them along the way and I'm not going to get too much into that. But then, but then she, so she's able to land in town with Joseph Smith Sr. and kind of the kid with the gimpy leg. Okay? And they're going to they're arrive in Palmyra. Now, here's the problem though. They have no money. They have no money. And so what happens is, and, uh, um, is that they're going to have to do a couple of things. Now, let, let me step back for just a sec. Because uh, I, I want to set it up. I want to set you up this next part. Because when this hit me, while I was studying for this, I, I was just kind of overwhelmed by, it's one of, those mo one of those aha moments. So this is one of my aha moments. Let me ask you this. Has anybody uh, read the book by Malcolm Gladwell called The Outliers? A couple people, okay. What was the, what, what was, do you remember what the idea of The Outliers was? Well, that's where, like, somebody, like the Beatles. Yeah. Play, 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 and after 10,000 hours, yes. they're ready for the big yeah, Malcolm Gladwell wrote something and he looked at uh, like the Beatles and Bill Gates and uh, Steve Jobs and uh, Ray Kroc with McDonald's and Sam Walton and he said, for these people to become extraordinarily successful, there has to first of all be a bit of fortune and good luck. They have to be in the right place at the right time to have the access to what they have to. Then they have to be extraordinarily driven people enough that when they, that opportunity shows up, they will take 10,000 hours to become world class at something. So he makes the case, for instance, that had Bill Gates been born one year earlier or one year later, there would be no Microsoft. Because he would not have been in the right place with access to the only computer that he could have had access in the entire United States at, with his drive to then get a chance to have 10,000 hours every night after all the professors had left to spend time and, and hone his craft. But again, give him a wiggle room or have him move 10 miles uh, farther out of town. There's just a number of things that have to come together that make it very, very fortunate for Bill Gates. Yeah. Uh, just before a while ago, you stated that Lucy came from a more affluent family. Yeah, uh huh. Did we not go back and ask for any type of financial? She had. Uh, Lucy Mac, she's asking about Lucy Mack had come from a more wealthy head. She came from the Macks, and they actually settled De uh, Detroit. Uh, and she had been given a large endowment by, by her family, uh, including the land that they were living on in Vermont. Uh, they become paupers when they have spent her entire inheritance. They spend everything that she had been given. And that's when, and that's when they're going to... It's not a lot. It's just a few thousand dollars. But, but, but it's still enough that they had tapped out their family completely. They really were poor. Okay. Sell their property? Uh, no, they had to walk away. Yeah, yeah. I believe it they were foreclosed on. Yeah. The Max had the ginseng. It was her family. Yes, it was. The the, the, the gin One of the uh, ship's captains, um, self-made or something, came back and said, 
Well, when he got to China, he sold it and he pretended he didn't get the money. Yes, yeah, he was the, yeah, Joseph Smith Sr. was defrauded by the ship's captain that was his partner in the ginseng business. So it, it, they were kind of counting on that, kind of, this was going to be their big home run, and it, and, uh, it didn't work. Okay, so all of that, all that inheritance money was gone. Okay, so uh, but back to this idea, this this moment in time. So, so um, whether it's Bill Gates or whether it was Steve Jobs, they have to be in the right time of history, in the right place to have access to the right stuff. The Beatles had a chance to be in the right time when the music was changing. They took their talent, but they spend two years in Germany honing their songs and stuff like that. But there, and because there, there has to be a ten thousand hour rule. To get that done, okay? You would think that when people first came for religious freedom that that might be a good time, but I took an American literature class when I went back to school and the writings, I mean, you know, there was religious persecution. Yes, and there's going to be, in spite of this being the best of all possible scenarios, you're still going to see how much religious persecution there is. They're still hanging on by their toenails. Maybe not burned at the stake, but... Close. <laughs> Maybe shot and, and killed in a jail. Um, okay, so here's, so here's my point. Here's what is so remarkable about this moment in time. I, I want you, here's what's going to happen. The, the Smith family is going to pick up and they're going to move to Palmyra. It, they're poor, so how are they going to support themselves? They have two older sons, they got son with a gimpy leg, and they got some daughters. Well, and Samuel. Okay. So what are the so so what are the uh, the older sons going to do? They're going to go clear land. They're going to hire out. Uh, after the after the the three bad years, the wheat crop is coming in, and it's a good wheat crop, and so they're going to be busy bucking hay and digging wells because you've got these two strapping boys. Uh, and Hiram is only about 14, 15, but he's strong enough. And Alvin is a couple of years older than that. Uh, and they, so they're hiring out. Alvin will actually go work on the building of the, the uh, Erie Canal uh, to try and bring in money. Okay, what is Mama Smith going to do? Yes, she makes oil uh, like tablecloths and stuff like that, and 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 she's going to uh, she's going to paint them, artsy craftsy, paint them and sell them. Who's going to sell them? The children. Okay, so the children are going to take that and cakes and 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 goodies, and they're going to peddle them. They're going to have like, you've seen like the little taco wagons and stuff where people go, but that's what they had. They, they built like a little uh, uh, dessert push cart thingy. And we're just going to go door to door. We're out doing whatever we can do to raise money. Okay? Now, there is one more element that's, that's kicking in right about this time that brings the one more piece into play here. Okay? Now, if you're coming, if you are a landed gentleman or gentlewoman living in Boston, don't you have a magnificent church that you go to? How many have been to Old North Church? 
Okay? You go in there, and in, in those churches, how do you know which pew is yours? You paid for that thing. And, it, and if you see it, the same pattern in the Kirtland Temple. Okay, you got your little area there and you paid for that pew. Your name is on there. It's cold. You're in Boston. You bring your dog. You know, he sits on your lap. You can like try and stay warm in your little pew area. That's what the churches were like. And who got to be in those areas? The rich, the wealthy, those that could afford a pew. Otherwise, you might be with one of the paupers up in the balconies, but the rich people were down low. Okay? Because they had their pew areas. Okay? Now, part of being a big part of the community is you're a big part of the church, and you're part of that. That's a landed gentleman. What happens when these people decide to pack up from southern Massachusetts and go to New York? You've got to start all over. And, you, and part of it is being landed again, which means what? You're going to be landed. And so this, the, the bottom here is the Presbyterian Church. Uh, and that was the first one. That was the old one. We think at the time of the Smiths, that was the only church standing. Those other two were built. The other three were built after. But the oldest one, the Presbyterian, was there first. Uh, and if you're going to be landed in... in uh, in Palmyra, you're going to be in that Presbyterian church and buy your pew. Sophronia Smith will buy a pew, her and Mama Smith, when they actually start to have a little bit of money. Okay? Um, but that said, for those people, they're landed. What about everybody else that's pouring into town? What's their religion? Don't know. So that's created this vacuum. So who's going to show up in, in upstate New York? This is now you're going to get the, the, the preachers that are going to start coming into town and you're going to start having the revival meetings like I've got, I'm showing up there in the corner. Okay? And now, so they're stirring all of these things up. Now, there is one other element, though, that is kind of interesting, and that is that there are a group of people uh, that call themselves deists. Uh, deists, a lot of the, the uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence were deists, meaning we believe in God, we believe in His in intervention in our life, but we don't necessarily ascribe for sure to a certain church, but we are open. Teach us, bring us ideas, and we'll listen. We're interested in God, we love God, we read the Bible, we're just not sure which of all these places we want to go. We're deists. Okay? So, here comes, here comes uh, all of these people coming to town, and they're going to have these circuit meetings, and they're going to have these revivalists, and it's going to be a little bit like the feeding of the 5,000, in the sense that everybody's showing up to hear Jesus, but after a while, what happens? We're hungry. We're starving. If only there was somebody in town that had a little cart... <laughs> with some desserts and maybe a tablecloth to put down on the ground so that you could eat and be able to sit and listen to these preachers that would preach for days. Okay. Enter who? Smith. Smith. Particularly the kid with the gimpy leg who is now about 12. 
His, he's getting stronger. He can now get rid of his crutch. But he's still, not, he's still not strong enough to be out clearing land. So he's stuck in town for two years. Listen to the divine timing. Joseph has to, because he can't, he's not well enough, and he's not healed enough yet to work the land, but he is strong enough to be sitting in on those circuit meetings and those revivals and be bringing the fruit and food to them uh, and the maple syrup and things that they're making as fast as they can go. So he's listening constantly to these revival meetings because he's in town. Now, there's one other, let me bring one other element to this. And this is what, this is what really jumped out at me. Uh, Richard Bushman in Rough Stone Rolling was able to locate the fact that in town, when they went back and started to interview some of the people long after the church has left there, they, they were interviewing some of the old settlers of Palmyra. And some were, some with some uh, negative comments about the church and, and about Joseph Smith and stuff like that. But one of them was an interview interesting interview with this with this boy and he said about this time when Joseph Smith that's two years Joseph Smith is living in town uh, we Joseph Smith was um, boy I wish I'd copied it I don't know if I put it in here did I put it in here nope I didn't Nope, I didn't. Shoot, I should have. I'll just tell you. Uh, there are two boys, he, he, this kid being one of them, that, that are apprenticing at the, the brand new uh, Palmyra Register. Register? The new newspaper. Brand new. Just started. Two boys, his same age. Uh, and he said, what would happen, is, he says there was this boy, Joseph Smith, and they said he, he wasn't real smart, and sometimes we'd tease him by painting him his face with uh, printer's ink, so they were teasing him, but he says, and this is fascinating, he's not real smart, but from time to time his mother's intelligence would shine out. <laughs> And he joined us at the junior at the juvenile debate society every night. Starting at twelve. These kids would get together after their work, and they said we would go to the red brick storehouse in Palmyra, and I was trying I kept trying to find pictures of the old I couldn't find the red brick storehouse. But it's in Palmyra. Um, and or was. Uh, Though there is a school right south of the Presbyterian Church. I wonder if it was there. Anyway, um, and they would, they would have the Juvenile Debate Society. And they would debate God. They would debate, they were deists. They would uh, debate politics. But they said this dull-witted boy would carry the night. He was the one that was pushing ideas and thoughtful and they would have long discourses with this dim-witted boy whose mother's intelligence would show up from time to time. <laughs> and Joseph is having nightly conversations with these kids for two years. Now, listen to the outlier, to the 10,000 hour because uh, for, for Joseph to be trapped in town 
to have the ability to be a part of this debate society, to be stirred up in his thinking and listening to the preachers and then bringing that back at night and them talking about it. If Joseph, and this is very cool, if Joseph Smith does not have the leg operation, he is out clearing land. He must still be recovering from something that will keep him in town. If Joseph is two years older, he's out clearing the land with Hiram and Alvin. He's not in town. If he's two years younger, mom isn't going to let him to be out, be out at night with these boys. There is a window of opportunity for Joseph Smith in his current condition for the because they're only going to be in Palmyra for two years. After that, they will spot this wonderful hundred pieces of acre, these hundred acres south of town, just outside the, the city limits, and they will move the whole town down, and they will move out of Palmyra, and there's no more juvenile debate society. There's a two-year window to stir up in Joseph Smith this idea of who is God and what does he want and of all these people that I'm listening to where would I go to have my sins remitted do I need to do it on my own do I need to do it from the scriptures do I need to be baptized do I need to be sprinkled do I need to be with my mom at the Presbyterian church I don't know I asked dad and dad's deist he goes I don't I don't know I've had my own visions I had a vision of a tree of life thing, by the way, that I saw, and it was kind of cool, but I've, and I've told you about that at night. But other than that, I'm, uh, and, so I'll, and so Joseph goes, I'm going to side with Dad. I don't know, but I'm going to bring all this idea into this debate society and think and analyze. Joseph got his 10,000 hours in those two, uh, two years in Palmyra. So by the time they move, listen closely, 1818 to 1819, they're going to now move on to the land in Palmyra. Okay? We almost to 1820? You see the timing? He's primed, he's excited, he's thinking, he's analyzing, and he's ready to go, and he's got questions. So he wasn't unknown to his Oh, very much so, right. Especially in that period of time, okay? Um, because the, this group of boys, and the Smiths weren't unknown because they were, they, they were for one thing, they knew that they weren't landed uh, people. They weren't landowners yet. But at that moment, they were no kind of as the people in town that are trying, they're kind of poor and they're trying to do whatever they can. So they knew Joseph Smith and they knew Hiram, and they knew them to be good boys, actually, hard workers, especially Alvin and Hiram, because they were the ones out doing the physical stuff. So it could have been why they took notes whenever he explained about this vision that he had. Yeah, just weird. Why? Weird, because we thought, we thought the Smiths were, you know, hardworking. But there is another problem. And that is in trying, to, and it's going to—it's not going to happen yet. But it's going to—we're about two years away from the fact that they're—they're uh, going to. Hold on, we'll get to that. <laughs> we got about ten minutes. Okay. So there is one other thing that needs to happen here. So Palmyra, when we start talking about the right time and the right place. The gospel seed is going to have to be planted in a place where there's a lot of nutrients 
and there's a possibilities, okay? If all of this had come together and they were trying to do this in New York City, you were going to have more landed people, more uh, prosperous people, and you were going to have a hard time finding people that would ever listen to the gospel. They had to be in a place with people that were excited and listening. They were on the frontier, things were brand new, and here comes this new gospel. And we actually kind of think because America is now this shining thing to the sea, we, built, we bloodied the nose of the bully on the block. Britain, uh, we are the shining piece. The millennium might be next year. Christ might be coming right away. There was that excitement, that sense of who we are. Fertile ground to grow. Yeah, so it was extremely fertile ground to grow, to plant this thing. Okay? All right. One last piece here. Now, 1818, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. is going to locate... Uh, there's a hundred acres just over the Palmyra line in the little township that is about to be formed in the next couple of years that they're provincially calling Manchester. And it's just over the line, the city line. Okay, and there's a hundred acres. And it's not owned, it's, it's owned by a land speculator out of New York. And it's just sitting there. And what they did in those days, if, you, if there's land that's sitting there, you could actually go improve property. You could build stuff on it. Uh, and, and in a sense, sort of take over. But as long as you start paying some leases to that. Um, what my, uh, my, by my family's history, uh, we were one of the first settlers in Rexburg. And, we, and our first big piece of property was uh, what is now known as Porter Park in, in Rexburg. Uh, but some settlers came and improved on that property and actually was able to take it away from my pioneer grandfather. And he, and he went to his grave angry that his land had been stolen from him by people who improved the land. Because he wasn't improving the land. He was patriarch. And, and his wife was the Relief Society president from Jackson Hole to Twin Falls. And she was always on the road. So they just didn't have time to improve the property. We lost our property in Rexburg. Well, in a sense, that's sort of what's happening here is that there's this hundred acres down there. And they're going to go improve it. They're going to go build a cabin on it. And in July of 1820... July of 1820, they'll actually make a contract with the guy in New York to actually begin the lease payments on the land. But at the time of, at the, time of uh, the first vision, which we're pretty sure we know the exact date, and I'll tell you that next week, um, that w they didn't yet own the land. They, they weren't even leasing it yet. They were just improving it. Okay, So there's those 100 acres down there. Okay, and so they're going to move down there. They will pull out of town, and now all the efforts of all the guys is going to be in clearing the, the property. It's it's a wooded property. If you've been in the Sacred Grove, there's a lot of old, old, old uh, growth trees, massive monster trees that had been there for hundreds of years, and they were able. And you don't chop those down very easily. You know, little axe. You know, you got this massive tree. They burned them. So they burned a lot of trees, and then the, they'd get the ash from these trees, and they would sell the ash uh, and mix it with lime and sell that in Palmyra. 
Okay, so they come back into town with to sell ash, but they're gonna so they're gonna burn most of the forest, the trees around the farm. Okay, <coughs> except there is a little stand of trees just to the west, right out back of the back door. Uh, and I'll, I've got a I've got a picture that I'll show next week of looking out the back door of the cabin out into those woods, which by the way, you can also see those woods looking inside the temple of the Palmyra Temple, out through the window that looks out. It's the only place in the church where there's a, an actually outside window because they wanted to be able to see that stand of trees through the, through the clear window in the temple. Okay, Little stand of trees out there that they didn't clear. Anybody know why? Yeah. Uh, well, uh huh. Yeah, that's actually. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of. I'm on this picture. I'm standing at the edge of those trees, looking back at the farm. Okay. Uh, maple syrup. They're gonna be. They they burn down the old growth trees, the big ones, but they leave the maple trees in this grove of trees so that they can then get the the maple syrup, and that's gonna play a, an important role. Why we know pretty close to the date of the first vision because of where the maple trees were running right at that moment in in early spring of 1820. Okay, but it was the maple trees. So they burned down the big trees, keep the maple trees, and, and that's where it is. Okay, so they're going to get 100 acres. Um, last couple of minutes, um, they start to make some money off of this thing. They have some good crops that come in. Uh, uh, Mama Smith wants to be landed. So she's going to join the Presbyterian Church. They buy a pew. Um, She's having tea with a group of ladies one day, and they're saying, it's such a shame that Mrs. Smith doesn't have a house. She's stuck in that little log cabin with all those kids, uh, and she doesn't have a really nice house to live in. Such a shame. And she says that she didn't say anything, but she was kind of consumed by the fact that she wasn't able to fit into society because everybody had nice houses except her. So she rolls back how, back to the house. And what's she interested in? I want to get out of the log cabin. I need a decent house. Okay? So... Um, they're, they're having to pay this incredibly high price of $100 a year for their property. But the, the, the custodian over the property, they save up their money carefully. They have the $100 ready to pay the custodian. Uh, he dies. So this is the year that the custodian doesn't show up to collect the $100 check. And they have that $100 burning a hole in their pocket. And Mama Smith, who wants a house, guess what they do? They build the house. Okay? By spending the money that they should have spent on the mortgage on the land. That will be a fatal error that will cause them to lose the house and the property in just a few years. But Mama's going to get her house. By the way, this is the house that the, the, the gold plates first come home to. 
passed through the back window to Josiah Stoll uh, and kept in the in the hearth and in the in the beans in the in the stable. Uh, a lot of a lot of stories surround, and we'll have, we'll talk about that. What happens in the in the white in the White House? But originally, it's on this. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, questions. Because we're now, because so, so, we're ready to jump in um, uh, next week uh, in late March. Yeah. You didn't cover any speculation on uh, Justin Senior drinking. No. It's going to hit. Uh, the, uh, the drinking is sort of there uh, in uh, while they're in Palmyra. But it's going to hit, uh, as he kind of starts to lose everything, it's going to hit more uh, in the mid-20s, 1820s. Uh, and that in some cases, because they saw him drinking, Joseph Smith Sr. is going to kind of be branded as a drunk. and It's not, it's not nearly as bad as they want to paint it out, but he, was, he, he did have a bit of a drinking problem. Yeah. So what did Father Smith do in Palmyra while the boys were out clearing land? And Joseph so, same thing. The problem is, is that uh, uh, Father Smith is in his early 40s. Uh, he's had kind of a hard life to this point. And, and the idea of being landed means that that in society in that time you would you would have your property you would develop your property you would be part of the community you would raise your kids and your kids would grow work the farm and build and they might have a farm next to yours or something like that if you are not landed if you no longer have property you're kind of you're adrift and what's going to happen when they lose the actual deed to the property is that Father Smith's going to be a bit adrift and he will never again have his own house, ever. And he will die in Nauvoo. And so the fact that he is not, doesn't have a whole lot of standing anymore because he's not landed, he doesn't have property, uh, is going to be kind of a constant source of embarrassment uh, to him. So, Father Smith is kind of a, a bit of a sad kind of thing until they get to Nauvoo and they make him patriarch, and he has a little bit more of a of a uh, standing. But Father Smith is going to be extremely important in next two weeks because he's 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 going to give an interview that we didn't know about until until the uh, the late night. 1990s, he's going to give an interview to a man and he's going to talk extensively about the Book of Mormon, about the lost pages, about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith Sr. is going to give us a lot of details on stuff coming from Father Smith that we didn't have in any other source other than this. So, all right, yeah. Here and, here and then here. I think and in his early 40s, Father Smith was able to kind of work with Alvin and Hiram. He was able to do that to a certain... But by the time he gets into his mid-40s, he's less and less able to do that. They're, they're covering more and more. And Alvin is really the primary uh, breadwinner for the family. That's why when Alvin dies in 1820, 1823, it's devastating. It's dev in fact... Um, Palmyra, uh, the, the four corners, if you head north, you see the red church, the white church, there's a white church on the other side, that is actually a little church, and there's a stand of trees right at the top 
of all of that. The steeple on the, the over here is pointing almost up there. That little top up there. That's Alvin's grave is up there. He, he's buried just off of this four corners here. And actually the last time we were in Palmyra, we'd been visiting now Alvin's grave. We came out and there's a little walk, you can actually see a little walkway between the church at the top there and Alvin's uh, grave area, the little cemetery. Uh, that church, the red church right at the top, uh, had just been holding a wedding and they had just left and as we're walking out of Alvin's grave we looked across and we could see into that church. It was kind of cool so we just walked over there and there were two pastors that had just finished this funeral and they were talking and we said we'd love to see the church. And he says, oh you guys here seeing Alvin's grave? Yep. <laughs> well great. And he says, we'd love to see your church. Wonderful. And they were so kind and they invited us in and gave us the history of this little church in Palmyra and were just really, really gracious. Very lovely people. Yeah? What did Alvin die of? I'm trying to remember. He just Col uh, Cholera? It, it, well, no. he actually died of an overdose right. of calamine. It's called Mercurus, which is the practice of giving poison as medicine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joseph Smith forever felt like his brother was killed by doctors. He's always uh, suspicious of doctors and, and when we get to Nauvoo you're going to see uh, you're going to see things in the Nauvoo uh, paper talking about beware of doctors. You know, don't give in any charlatans or doctors coming through town. <laughs> they, and some of our natural distrust of doctors in the church traditionally actually has some of its roots there. Yeah. Okay, looking at this picture, are we looking at north? Yes. So the red church is in the north of the... Yeah, it's the one right, it's the one right in the right-hand corner right at the top. Is the little church we went into, and the crosswalk across there walks over to Alvin's grave. You've got to go up a little hill and then up onto the, up onto the property. And the Erie Canal is just, on, is just about half a mile down the road up there. It's just up on top. Okay. Yeah, please. Uh, you mentioned the, the uh, picture window in the temple. Yeah, in the Palmyra Temple. When right. My husband and I went there that week. We'd never seen a window like that in the temple. And the temple guy came up to us and he said, would you like me to tell you that story? And we said, yes. And he said, President Hinckley wanted to see the sacred grove. He says, and when he came and the temple was built, he said, well, what is that line of trees there? And they said, well, we couldn't take them down. The city won't let us. And President Hinckley said, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> And a tornado come through and took out all those trees, so you can now see the sacred grove. Don't mess with President Hinckley. He said, he said that's a true story, and so yes, we it. and it is true, and it really is true that President Hinckley stood there and said, "I want to be able to see out." Yeah, see and so they actually keep those trees. It's funny when you're looking out out that window, the, the trees right in front of the temple, between that and the Canonagua Road that's running here, that. They're cleared out, so you're literally looking through that and you can see the sacred grove through there. It's very cool and, and very appropriate yeah. in the Palmyra you know, Temple. The, the temple was finished, that wall was finished, and it had to be torn out. Yeah, it had to be taken out, you had to replace that, yeah. Just a quick thought, and, and some of the things you've been going through with being in the right place at the right time, all the little things, little details that happen that, that move and progress, um, the situation just makes me think how we so often I think people are trying to be too much in control of their own personal destiny 
and how you can't do the opposite by just sitting there and doing nothing and expecting the Lord to do all the work, but it's about allowing ourselves to be led rather than trying to super hyper control. Yes, that, that, exactly everything um, in our own personal destiny. Yeah. But it's good to have goals. How about we let the Lord be in charge? Yeah. Let him let him put us where we need to be put and follow his promptings to do that. I think that that's a wonderful idea. President. Back to uh, Joseph's situation with his family. It seems odd that families were proselyted to different religions like that. And Joseph Smith's history says mothers uh, Lucy. Samuel, Hiram, and Sophonia all were proselyted to the Presbyterian Church, but he himself was partial to the Methodist. He was. And it's just different how religion would divide them. Sure. And you get a sense of how they were being pulled in opposite directions. That's why this is such a fertile ground because everybody's deciding where are they going to go. And in the middle of that, here comes the Book of Mormon into a group of people who's, who are kind of a little more open-minded about where they might land because they haven't completely landed for generations yet. It's just such an incredible fertile place and time and person. Okay? All right. Final comments? And it's fun. There's so much. Okay, so for next week, let me have you do this. Uh, I need you to read the church essays on the, the four different versions of the first vision. Uh, I, have, I have an amalgamated, uh, I, uh, a few years ago, and I think when we taught this a few years ago, I actually sent it out. I'll, I'll resend it again. I took all the four vi versions of the vision, the four vision versions. <laughs> I amalgamated them into one because I think they provide an entire narrative that is more full because that, that's one way of looking at it that he told parts to different people. Uh, so go back and read the church essay on the four different vision versions um, as, as kind of the precursor and then like I say I'll send you the amalgamated version this week that you can read through and that will get us ready. Uh, for for those marvelous events, the last part of March of 1836 or 1820. Have you noticed in the February inside that they're starting a four-chapter spread of church history? Yeah. I hadn't seen that. Yes. Really? The first chapter is in the February. Yes, so good. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I'm telling you, you we are in an incredibly fertile moment right now where there's just more stuff. And when, when we get ready to talk about the translation, there's a whole book, brand new book, just in, in the last two years that's come out on the translation process and all that. So it's just cool. So anyway, uh, appreciate you being here. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.